Welcome, welcome to those of you who are new. It's so good to have you here. Um, I mentioned, uh, or Austin mentioned a few moments ago, we have this pizza with a pastor sort of thing. It's an opportunity. I really, it's me trying to hang out with you who are new. Um, to answer any questions you have, to try to connect with you, and that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So if you're, a new, if you're new, new-ish to the church, uh, and you want to know more about us, or you want to know more about, um, uh, about, about me, or about what we believe, or what we're about, where we're headed, uh, I would love to be able to connect with you. Please mark that out. Okay, um, man, it's really good to be with you this Sunday morning in this nice warm room together. Uh, I'm really excited about John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, would you please open to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Uh, We have been walking verse by verse through the Gospel of John. That has taken us about five years. Um, We haven't been doing it all at once, though. So the reason it's taken five years is because we've been doing it in sections. And that's intentional. Some people don't know that the reason why we do that Um, The reason we do that is because we recognize that as a church in Santa Monica, in Los Angeles, that we will have people who will only be here for a couple of years, and I don't want you to only know the Gospel of John. Um, So we work through it in sections to move around the text, but we are going to finish the Gospel of John uh, in the next few weeks here. And this morning is really looking at a text that is very familiar because it's often preached on Easter Sunday. Uh, And nevertheless, we're going to look at it before Easter Sunday, and we will once again look at an Easter text on Easter Sunday in a few weeks here. But I'm excited to be in John 20 with you, uh, a familiar text and a just awesome, beautiful text. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 18 is where we're going to hang out. And again, my hope and prayer this morning um, is not that you, uh, you receive a word from me. Um, but that you receive a word from the Lord, right? That's what we're here for, to hear God's word. And uh, if God uses me in any capacity, that's great. That's him. Give him all the credit. If I make mistakes, you blame me. Uh, That's how that works. All right, John chapter 20. uh, Last week, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they put Jesus in a tomb. Nicodemus wraps the body. That's how John 19 ends. We pick up with John 20, and it says this. Now, on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were both going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Always a little funny. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept... She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and 
and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I don't know if you've read many biographies. Biographies are always fun to read. You learn a lot about history and a particular person, maybe someone you like or someone you appreciate. Um, but if you read biographies, most biographies, almost all biographies that are written after someone has died, start about the same and end about the same. A biography starts with, so-and-so was born here and tells of their early childhood. And then as you read the biography, you get to the end of it. And the biographies typically end with, then the person died. And here's what they accomplished. And that's the end. That's how all biographies end, except for this one. This one is different. In John 19, the story ends. Jesus is laid in a tomb. He's wrapped with linen and myrrh and aloe. And, and that's supposed to be the end. If you're reading John's gospel as a biography, you get to the point where you go, okay, Jesus has died. That's the end. But John keeps going. He's got more story to tell. Like Kat says, the like she just said, right, the burial is not the end of Jesus' story. Instead, something happens. Jesus is alive. He dies, and then he is alive. Jesus is alive. And that claim is so central to Christianity that Jesus' later followers, including Paul himself, will say that it is the most important claim. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, and he says that I delivered to you of first importance. What does he say is of first importance? It's that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. That's what Paul says is the most important thing. Because if the tomb is empty, and if Jesus died and then rose again, then that means that he is the Son of God and that he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Jesus' resurrection is the receipt that our debt, your debt and my debt, has been paid, and that God has received that payment in full, and then extends to us the benefits of Jesus' payment. God's plan worked. The tomb is empty. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the sanctifier of the world. He is the intercessor for the world. And he is the judge of the world. And that claim is what should make everyone either become Christian or reject Christianity. 
This claim is so central that the earliest enemies of Christianity fought hard against it. They said no way did that happen because they understood the implications of it. Now, there are popular theories that have emerged throughout history about what happened that morning in the most important morning in human history. And some say that, well, the body must have been stolen. I won't spend too long this morning kind of debunking all of these things, but they, some say the body must have been stolen. People don't rise from the dead. Someone must have stole the body. But that begs the question, like, who stole the body? The disciples didn't think resurrection was going to happen. They don't really understand what's going on. They're sort of dumbfounded repeatedly. And they had no ability to steal the body. So they didn't know to do it and they couldn't do it. Meanwhile, in the Gospels, you get the enemies of Jesus who are talking about Jesus' sort of claims around resurrection. But let me tell you, if you're Rome, the last thing you want to do is pretend to resurrect a guy who's claiming to be the Messiah. There's no incentive for Rome to do it. You don't want that tomb to be empty if you're Rome because that means that that sign you put on his head saying that he is the king of the Jews, that he is the Lord of lords, it means it's true. So his disciples couldn't do it, wouldn't have known to do it. The Romans could have done it but wouldn't have wanted to do it. It doesn't make any sense, especially given that the earliest claims of Christianity are that people met Jesus resurrected. At one point, 500 people See Jesus resurrected. And that is what gives them this ability to believe in a powerful new way. Others say, well, no, they didn't steal the body. They just went to the wrong tomb. Clearly, this is a giant mix-up that's happening. Let me be very clear. The easiest thing to stop Christianity is just to prove his body is still there. Look, I am a Christian because that tomb is empty. And if they found the body of Jesus tomorrow, and they could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's his body, I would stop preaching, I would stop being a Christian altogether. But they're not going to find his body because it's resurrected. Some claim, well, he didn't really die, he just like only appeared to be dead. But that doesn't make any sense, given that they saw him dead, and then they found his clothes, and he was completely restored. There's no encounter with Jesus where they're like, then we met Jesus and he was sort of like bleeding all over the place and sort of meandering around. He's not a zombie. This isn't resuscitation. When Jesus comes back, he is fully and completely restored. He is resurrected. He is Risen. This event is so significant, so important, that people should consider naming their churches after it. So this morning, I had to do that. I had to say that. This morning, we're going to look at the most important morning in the history of the world. And I really want you to see the way that John is talking about seeing. So the title of my sermon this morning is Seeing Jesus. And I really want you to see that John's obsessed with seeing. And I want to tease out some implications for us as we move forward. So this is my outline this morning. First, first two verses, seeing but not seeing. Then 3 through 10, seeing and seeing. And then last 11 through 18, seeing and seeing and seeing. Now, I'll make this all make sense, so just walk with me. But you'll get it, you'll get it. Um, and we'll, we'll get there together. So the first two verses, it's early in the morning. Verse 1 and 2, Mary gets there before. She's traveling with some other women, but she gets there before anybody else does while it's still dark. And she wants to 
finish what Nicodemus had started. She wants to honor the body of Christ. She's hoping that she'll be let in. And when she gets there, she discovers that the stone has been rolled away. Well, an angel has done this, but Mary, in the dark, in the early morning, assumes the obvious. Someone has broken in and stolen the body. I mean, what other conclusion would you come to if you're Mary? You've arrived at the tomb. There's the stone. The body's not there. Jesus is gone. She bolts back to Peter and to John. She gets in verse 2 to John and Peter. They're together. John is referring to himself here as the one whom Jesus loved. He does that throughout the Gospel of John. When you see that, John is talking about himself. So she gets to Peter and she gets to John. And the other women are still back at the tomb and they're sort of arriving to find out that Jesus has actually risen. But Mary is freaking out. And at the beginning, I want you to see that John wants you to see that Mary can see, but you can't see. What do I mean by that? Well, the word see has at least 10 uses. If you later look at a dictionary, you can see like some dictionaries, 15 plus uses of just the word see. But here's what I mean when I say see. Mary sees that the stone is rolled away. She sees that Jesus isn't there. She sees, she glimpses this reality, but she does not understand it at all. She sees, but she doesn't see. She glimpses the basic fact, body's not there, stone is rolled, but she has no idea to do with, what to do with this information. She just has information, but she can't make sense of it. In the same way, we live in a world today where Christianity is proclaimed all over the place, Easter is celebrated, that Jesus is risen. We see the claims of Jesus. We see the impact of Jesus. I mean, we look around in the world, and maybe you're one of these people, and, and you, you, you see Christianity, or you see the claims, but you don't know, you don't understand it. You see, but you don't see. I, I, I want you this morning to understand that Christianity has shaped the whole world. I want you to see the impact of the empty tomb. Because that tomb is empty, we have an entire world that believes that at the foundation of everything is love. We believe in a personal God and a personal world. We believe that justice is real. If you believe justice is real, it's because you were handed that gift by people who believe that the tomb was empty. If you believe that every human being is worthy of dignity and honor and respect, you believe that because that tomb was empty, and people proclaimed that empty tomb to the ends of the earth. If you live in America, which most of you do, we believe that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That, that language, that all men are created equal and are, are worthy of that kind of dignity, that emerges out of people who believe that that tomb was empty. The reason we have education institutions is because people who took seriously that that tomb is empty changed the world. Hospitals, because of Christians, Christianity has shaped, you, you may not be a Christian, but I want you to see that the way we view time, the way we view the world is shaped by people who saw that that tomb was empty. We see the gifts that Christianity has brought, and we see the transformation of people's lives. And so I want to speak just for a moment to those of you who are here this morning who you say, I see Christianity and I see its claims, but I don't understand it. I don't get it, and I certainly wouldn't call myself a believer. I want to say, you're welcome here. 
that I hope that here you will find a place where you can look carefully and examine the truthfulness of Christianity. I hope that you should be questioning and asking, like, is this true? Will this lead to peace? Will it lead to hope? And I think you'll find that the answer again and again is yes. And we want to be a part of that journey with you. But if you're here this morning and you, you see Christianity, but you don't really understand it, you see but don't see, I want to I invite you to keep looking. And I want to invite you to keep asking questions, to keep showing up. Maybe grab a person that you're sitting next to this morning, invite them out to lunch and say, I want to know more. I want to not just see, but I want to see. So that's verses 1 and 2. Then we continue on to the next section, seeing and seeing. In verse 3 and 4, Peter and John begin to race towards the tomb, and John wants you to know that he gets there first. Now, we all like to joke about this. It's always kind of funny when you're reading this, but I think you all should know why John writes this. You see, at the time when John writes his gospel, the most commonly understood gospel is the gospel of Mark, and the gospel of Mark emerges primarily out of Peter's perspective. So people have an understanding that Peter is an eyewitness to these accounts. When John is writing the Gospel of John, he wants you to know that he was there too. He wants you to know he was also an eyewitness. In fact, he got there before Peter did. That's what he wants you to know. That's why he says that. He's trying to help you understand that he too understands what's happening. He, he, his witness is valid. And so in verse 5, John, who beats Peter, gets there and he cautiously looks in. Is it a trap? He's hesitant. It's still dark. So he remains outside, but he kind of looks in. What does he see when he looks in? He sees the linen that Jesus had been wrapped in. And the linen is sort of ordered like Christ. It's sort of in the place where Christ was. They haven't been, in other words, Jesus' body has not been furiously unraveled, and then the linen's just tossed to the side. This isn't a violent act. Something peaceful has happened in this moment. Grave robbers don't explain this. So John just looks and notices something is happening here. Then Peter gets there. And when Peter gets there, Peter goes in and he sees these linens. And then in verse 7, they notice that the face cloth, the one, the cloth that's covering Jesus' face is folded and set aside. So then John goes in, and it says that John went in in verse 8, and John saw, and John believed. Now again, I'm talking about the word see, because John talks so much about the word see. In verse 5, John uses the word see to mean Kind of a glimpse, a glance, just to, to glance at. In, the, in verse 5, you'll notice that's what that word see means. In verse 6, John uses the word see again. But here, he saw the linen cloth, and this means to carefully observe, to look at carefully. So John kind of glances, then carefully observes. Then in verse 8, we have a different kind of see. In verse 8, that word see, where it says that he saw and believed, means that he understood or he comprehended. Here, John sees and John sees. You ever been in a conversation with someone and they go, oh, I see. That's what happens here. 
He doesn't just see. He sees. He understands. He puts it together. You see, the disciples did not expect that Jesus would be resurrected, even though Jesus had talked about it. He had said things like, he's going to destroy the temple, and on three days later, he will raise it again. He said that in John 2. And the disciples struggled to remember this, and later on they do, but the enemies of Jesus certainly did. Jesus compared himself to Jonah. He said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, buried and then out of the way in three days. He says clearly he will be raised, but they don't really know what he's talking about. And at this particular moment, John sees everything, and he just puts it all together. Oh, Jesus is risen. Now, anytime you're looking at a text like this, when I was reading this text, and I was thinking about preaching, and I thought about how cool it would be for us to be able to walk into that empty tomb. I mean, who among us wouldn't want to lift up the linen and touch it ourselves or unfold the face cloth or walk around and examine for clues? I mean, we all would want to do that, and we kind of think John had the ability to do that. And and if John had that, of course John saw and he understood. He was there. But then I find myself when declaring before God, God, I wish I had been there. I wish I could see like that. I wish I had access to that kind of evidence. I hear Jesus reminding us throughout the Gospel of John again and again, you don't need grave clothes to understand this. You have something better. What Jesus never says is that what you need most is to be there. No, what Jesus says is what you need most is my word. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John sees the grave clothes, but I bet that John is able to put together that Jesus has been talking about this moment all along. John sees, and he sees. And then in verse 9, John wants you to know that even though he understood, he got it, and he believed, he didn't understand how the Old Testament at this time had pointed to everything. They would later come to that understanding. So it's not the Old Testament that John is clinging to. It's just him being with Christ and him being at the tomb and him trusting in God's word. So in verse 10, they go back to their homes. John saw and John saw. Look, some of you in this room are in that first Mary category. You see kind of the Christian claims, but you don't understand and you don't believe. Others of you are in this camp of you see the claims of Christianity and you understand them and you believe them. Like John, you see and you see. But maybe, like John in verse 9, you find yourself not having all of the answers. Maybe you find yourself in a world today where you're asked questions all the time about what you believe and you're not entirely sure what to say. That's okay. That's okay if you don't have all of the answers. John leaves the tomb and he doesn't have all the answers. But he believes and he trusts Jesus' word. I know that I'm speaking to a group of people who struggle sometimes with faith. They believe, they see, and they see. But sometimes they they can't make sense of it all. That's okay. Continue in your faith. Continue to believe. Continue to grow. And continue to ask questions. 
May we never have the kind of faith that is afraid of asking questions. For we believe that if God is God, God is truth. Amen? So, lastly, seeing and seeing and seeing. We're back at Mary in verse 11. Mary gets back to the tomb, but this time Peter and John are long gone. In fact, the women Mary was with earlier, they're also not there. And and so Mary, once again, is headed back to the tomb. It's an interesting story because Mary just told Peter and John, someone stole the body, and then they race off. And then by the time she gets back, she, she finds herself drawn back to this tomb, this garden where Jesus has been laid. I think about that Proverbs 8.17 where it says, I love those who love me. It's so clear that Mary loves Jesus. So when she gets back, they're gone, and she gets there, and she still thinks Jesus is dead and that his body's been stolen. She doesn't understand, and so she's just weeping. Weeping because she thinks that something terrible has happened to Jesus, and she looks in the tomb in verse 12, and she sees two angels in white. Now, the text doesn't say that she recognizes them as angels. It just says that they are, and she's not moved by them at all. So oftentimes in the Bible, when people see angels, the angels say, do not be afraid, because people are often afraid of angels. But here Mary is just unmoved by this moment because she's so sad, and she has other things on her mind. And the angels ask Mary the question, Mary, why are you weeping? And she's got to be like, what? Why, why am I weeping? Um, because someone stole Jesus' body. He's not here. And then for some unknown reason, Mary turns around and sees a gardener. She feels or senses a presence of someone. And it's Jesus standing right by Mary. She doesn't know that. Maybe that's because her eyes are filled with tears, or maybe it's because it's still very dark out, or maybe it's because the last time she saw him, he was mangled. And Jesus says, why are you weeping? She's like, ask this question again? Why am I weeping? Because someone stole the body of Jesus. Who are you looking for? Jesus knew that Mary was broken, Jesus knew she was confused, and he's opening her eyes. And I love this moment, Mary looking at Jesus, who she thinks is the gardener, and she's like, if you have the body, I want it. She, she says to the gardener, who's Jesus, if you want his body, if you have his body, I want his body. She's ready to risk this relationship, like, what, how is this going to go? What's this gardener going to be like, actually, I do have the body, I'm going to give it to you, Mary? Like, what's she thinking, right? She's just overwhelmed, and so she's looking at Jesus, can't tell that it is Jesus, dark out, and she just says, if you have the body, give it to me. And then, in verse 16, she turns away from Jesus for some reason, and Jesus just says her name. Mary. All he had to do was speak her name, Mary. Jesus had talked about this in John 10. Jesus had said that the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. He says, Mary. And she turns back and she sees him again. Or maybe she sees him for the first time. She sees and she sees and she sees. 
And what does her seeing lead to? She falls down in worship of Jesus. And she cries out, Rabbani, which is this term of endearment, of respect. It's my teacher. And she grabs him and she clings to him. And she's now real. She's just worshiping him. He's everything she desires. He's everything that she wants. And she has him. And she's holding on to him with this sense of like, I'm never going to let you go. Jesus says, Mary, don't cling to me. He's not being rude. He's saying, Mary, I'm here. Don't panic. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere just yet. And I have a job to do. Ascend. And you have a job to do. Go tell the others. Go tell them, my father, your father, my God. Your God. Don't cling to me, Mary. Go tell them. And she did. And in verse 18, what does she say? I have seen the Lord. The disciples are mourning and praying, and they don't believe her, but then she quotes Jesus. She says, this is what he told me to tell you. She sees and she sees and she sees. Okay. Find yourself in this story as we begin to close. Some of you see, but you don't see. You understand Christianity. You've heard these claims. You see its implications, its gifts, its beauty maybe. But you are skeptical of its truthfulness, and you don't really understand it at all. And you certainly wouldn't call yourself a believer. Maybe that's you. Some of you, you see, and you see. You understand. You believe. You get it. But all of us should see, to see, to see, and by that I mean all of us should move from the place of seeing to believing to falling down and worshiping Jesus, clinging to him as though he is all we have, as though he is our only hope, as though he is the one we love most. All of us should see, to see, to see. But in order for us to see, we all have to look. In order for us to see, we all have to look. Um, right now as a church, we're reading uh, through Numbers. You made it through Leviticus. Congratulations. We're in Numbers now. Numbers chapter 21. There are snakes, uh, and, and, and uh, the Israelites are being bitten, and Moses is instructed to hold up a snake on a pole. And Moses is told by God that if people in their misery, if in their misery, if they just look at the snake on the pole, they'll be saved. It's an odd story. You get to John chapter 3, and Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That thing that happened back there in Numbers lifting up the serpent on the pole and looking for salvation, Jesus says, that's what you're to do with me. To see, we have to look. In 1849, Charles Spurgeon, one of the prince of preachers, one of the greatest preachers of all time, one of my theological heroes, he was 15 years old. He normally went to the same church regularly, but in 1849, it was wintertime, there was a snowstorm, and so he was stuck in a place where he had to go to another church. 
church he'd never been to before, and he stumbled into a church. And at this point in Spurgeon's life, he's wrestling with how to be forgiven, how to be saved. And he walks into this church, and there's 12 people in the church. And there's a guest preacher that morning. And the guest preacher that morning is reading and teaching out of Isaiah 45, verse 22. In the King James Version, it reads this way. Look unto me, and ye be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And the preacher in this room with just 12 people in this cold winter, he begins to teach on this text, and he says to them, the text says, look. And he says, looking doesn't take work. Looking doesn't mean lifting a finger. Looking isn't painful. A fool can look. A rich man can look. A child can look. God says, look. And then the preacher says, with Spurgeon there, don't look to yourself. The text says, look to me. Look to God. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to the things of this world. Look to Christ. Look to Christ on the cross. Look to Christ buried in a tomb. Look to Christ raised from the dead. Look to Christ ascended to the Father. Look to Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And Spurgeon was transformed that day. That is the day he came to faith. This preacher looked at him and said, Young man, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. In order to see, you have to look. Church, let me close this morning by encouraging you to stop looking at yourself. You look at yourself and you won't be able to discover any way that you'll be able to save yourself. Don't look at your bank account. That is certainly not going to save you. In fact, it's often as it grows bigger will make many of you more miserable. Don't look at your circumstances. Though they may be bleak for a moment, we sang a song earlier that's easy to sing and hard to believe. God, you're never going to let me down. That's true. It may not always feel like it in the moment, but it's true. Don't look at your job. Don't look at the grind. Don't look at the next day of work and the next day of work and the task list you have to accomplish. Do not think that you can be saved by your job, by your success, by your accomplishments. Don't look at your grades, students. Do not look at your grades to save you. They cannot give you your identity. And when your grades are good, you'll feel good about yourself. And when they're bad, you'll feel terrible. Don't look at your friends, though they can often be helpful. Not a one of them can save you. Don't look at your spouse, husbands, wives. Do not think marriage can save you or your marriage will save you. It cannot. Look at Christ. Look at him offering you forgiveness. Look at him offering you the peace you're looking for. Look at him offering you the hope you are longing for. Look at him offering you the love of God as he offers you himself. Look at Christ and be transformed. You want to be saved? You have to look. And if you look, you'll see. My hope is that you see and you see 
and you see in such a way that you fall down in worship and say, thanks be to God, I cannot save myself, but I can only be saved by God's grace. And I can know that I'll be saved because that tomb is empty and because he is risen. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we are a distracted people whose eyes wander. We find ourselves looking all sorts of places in order to be relieved, in order to experience peace, in order to experience joy, hope, forgiveness, salvation. You call us to look at Jesus, to see him on that cross dying for us, to see him laid in that tomb dying for us, to see him resurrected on the third day so that all of us who would receive Christ as alive today would be forgiven and cleansed of our sins, set right with you. Lord, I pray for those who see but don't see, would you draw them into looking more carefully, to questioning, and that you would bring them to faith as we exalt and lift you up. I pray for those who are struggling with their faith, who they see and they believe, but they, they don't know everything, they don't have it all figured out. God, I pray that all of us would be drawn to seeing Christ in such a way that he would become the object of our worship and affection, that we would cling to Christ, that we would just throw ourselves at his feet, that we would see that he truly is God. We would look to him when things are going well. We would look to him when things are going terribly. We would look to him. That 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we would look to him. For he is God and he is risen. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this room and what you've done in our lives. Continue to transform us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.